Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film geeks. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. We're back with our mini-series from stage to screen, where we study film adaptations of Broadway musicals and prove once and for all that film and theater can work together in harmony. Famed film theorist and former professor of mine, Steve Tropiano, calls in so we can rule the school and do the hand jive as we unravel a movie that changed my life, Grease. All right, my fiction film theory professor from Los Angeles, Steve Tropiano, is here for probably one of the most special episodes of this show that we've done, talking about Greece today. And Greece is quite possibly one of the biggest reasons that we are here today, uh, because it honestly changed my life in terms of uh, getting me interested in theater and performing. I saw it first when I was like six or seven, and I was never the same after that. And uh I, I was curious um, what your relationship um, to Greece is. I know you said you wrote a book about it. Um, what what attachment do you have to the film? Well, um, I think it actually starts with the musical, um, which I saw when I was in high school, where they would actually put us on a bus and drive us down to the city to see Greece. And I remember we sat like in the top top row of the <laughs> of the theater, <laughs> really high up, could barely mm-hmm. see. Uh, and I remember Treat Williams was in it, played Danny Zuko. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, Greece was actually on Broadway for a really long time, mm-hmm. um, for about eight years. It was the longest running musical for a long time. And I always remember seeing the commercial on television. And then when the movie was made, um, I'm embarrassed to say that when I saw it, I went to the drive-in. I was in, it was like between um, sophomore and junior year of high school. And I went with my brother and his now wife, and I sat in the back, <laughs> uh, back seat in the drive-in, and watched the film. Um, and I, you know, I had known about it because there was so much publicity about it. And obviously, I, I had seen the show, and John Travolta was a huge uh, star, and Olivia and John was a big recording star. So um, after that, I have seen it so many times. Uh, you know, probably about fifteen or sixteen times. Mm-hmm. It's definitely one of the top 10 most rewatched movies for me. When I saw it, I was um, I was at like a summer uh, program and they had like just a they had they had a big screen in the gym and they were playing it and we could just like I think it was like kind of this party thing where we could just like hang out and like talk to people. And like I just was so mesmerized, like when summer nights came on and I was I was like, what is this movie? And the music was so cool. And I was just so into it. And the energy of all the songs and particularly yeah. uh, John, Tra- John Travolta, which we'll, we'll t- obviously get into, um, I was just taken aback by. Uh, and it, it, it made me really um, pursue the idea of performing because I it was the only outlet that I knew that could really, that I could channel that energy to. And that's kind of one of the great testaments of Greece is how very accessible as a musical and is iconic because of the because of the songs and the dance numbers i feel and i think one of the reasons it is accessible is because it's about high school mm-hmm. even though everyone is in their 30s <laughs> seems. <laughs> um but we could talk about that too um mm-hmm. but um and i think that's why it kind of even has like international appeal because um there aren't that many um broadway musicals that are about high school 
Um, and even film musicals. I mean, now there's high school musical and all those things, which I think actually were probably very much influenced um, by Greece. But if you mm-hmm. think about it, everybody has been to high school, even if you didn't go to the high school in 1959. Um, there's things I think that people can actually relate to um, in high school. And so I think that's the reason why it's, and granted it's an American high school, but the idea that if you live in another country, you probably went to school too. And it raises a lot of issues and deals with a lot of things that people that are also, I think, iconic and that you've seen before, even in, you know, John Hughes movies and so on. Um, But the fact that it actually has, you know, I think that appeal. And I think also the score is very accessible uh, because it's a pop score. Um, mm-hmm. And the musical itself was one of the first musicals to actually do that, to actually use pop music uh, on the Broadway stage. You know, people were used to like Rodgers and Hammerstein and you know, people were used to stuff that is a little more, comp- usually a little more complex. And also it was pastiching or copying music from the 1950s and the style. Um, that's mm-hmm. sort of how the people who wrote it, Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey were um really influenced by because they loved movies. They loved uh, music from the fifties and they decided, I think one late drunk night, why not write a musical uh, that actually had (laughs) those uh, kinds of songs in them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this, but the original Grease, the original, original production, which was done at Kingston Mines um, theater in Chicago was kind of like a cult musical. Um, It was much raunchier. It has some of the things, it re- the future musical on stage and even the film retain. But I actually know someone, a friend of mine actually saw it and said it was a very hard ticket to get. It was in this theater that was kind of falling down. And um, <laughs> it was like kind of this like hot ticket. And it was, it was about like greasers. It was much more kind of street. And mm-hmm. it had much more of an edge <laughs> to it and it was a lot raunchier. It was a lot more for adults. Um, and then when it got brought to um, Broadway, they rewrote it and they cleaned it up um, a lot. And there's a little bit of raunchiness in the, in the stage musical, uh, mm-hmm. not too much, just in terms of things like language and so on. And then when it got to the screen, it got completely uh, sanitized for a, a general audience. Yeah, the the movie definitely seems, and I, I've seen the stage musical before. That there, there are quite a few differences that they uh, that are changed in the um, adaptation, which which makes it also in and of itself like uh, so so unique. And I, I love a good high school movie. Uh, I feel like that that like just the world of any high school is so easy to get sucked into because of how formative those years are for so many people and all the memories just come rushing back. Even obviously, like you said, even if you don't, if you didn't go uh, during the fifties and that also just has some, you know, iconic imagery of like a malt shop and everyone in, in jackets and slick back hair, uh, just the age of trying to, you know, figure out what kind of person you are and dealing with problems that you had never really conceived of before this point in your life. And it's very clear they wanted to, um, try and focus on that while also uh, they may kind of go overboard in the movie because there's so many problems and um, issues that they're trying to address right. through these various stories. And, and, it, and it's, it's a very crowded musical almost in yeah. a sense. I'm watching it last night. I, uh, I was so excited, but I, I was realizing how many story plots that there were 
uh, in the movie. Like literally every right. character has something going on. Um, I wanted to ask about um, about your book that you wrote. I was just curious. Um, why uh, why did you choose Greece to um, to focus on uh, as a subject for an in, for an entire book? Well, um, I'll be very honest. I, it actually chose me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what had happened was um, I wrote a book on cabaret, uh, mm-hmm. another great movie musical, very different from Greece. And then they gave me a list of like five other musicals and said pick one. And I saw Greece on it, and I thought, well, I'm going to do that because uh, I probably will have the most to say about it. And um, it was the more of the ones that were on the list. It was probably the most iconic um, of, uh, you know, of the movie musicals. And it is something that has still, uh, people are still watching. I mean, I, I think one of the, I think about two years ago, I went to a Grease sing-along. I don't know if you've ever been to that. It was at the Hollywood Bowl, which is huge. Oh, wow. Hollywood's mm-hmm. massive. And uh, I think D.D. Uh, Conner played Frenchie was there. And, you know, they had the lyrics on the screen. Uh, awesome. And then they've done that for TV, and I think mm-hmm. they're going to, you know, that's shown like periodically, um, you know, as well. So it is. It always amazed me how something can can be, um, you know, The Wizard of Oz. I think is an iconic musical, and probably the sound of music because they've been on every year and so on. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think one of the things that's key is it appeals to different generations uh, because right. of what it's about. You know, so it's the kind of thing like, yeah, your parents probably saw it when it came out. Uh, you know, and then their kids, and I'm sure your kids, if you have kids, um, will watch it too, uh, because of, you know, because it focuses on, uh, high school. And it definitely, uh, is a different movie musical compared to those others that you mentioned specifically like Sound of Music. And I mean, we talked about like West Side Story, um, just because of almost seemingly like it's, like you said, it's a very sanitized, um, and, uh, lower stakes musical i guess if if that makes sense yes. it's it's very different and i think we no should not there's bit. no nazis or yes there's uh, no know, nazis there <laughs> no gangs uh, no street gangs <laughs> right yeah i mean um but let, i wanted to talk a little bit about the musical genre um in just a, as a quick overview um why do you think that the the movie musical has kind of kind of goes like in ups and downs throughout the decades and um had some extreme notoriety in the early days of film with obviously like rko and united artists um why do you feel that like how is greece necessarily a break from the norm and why is the movie musical uh kind of stayed in uh in the zeitgeist of audience um going well let me see when i think of um like iconic musicals from like the classical era, let's say from like the thirties and the fifties. Um, they were usually either very star driven, like, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals like top hat. Um, but also because really because of MGM, which had a unit, the Arthur Fried unit, which made musicals. And, you know, one thing about the uh, studio system is they, they had people under contract, uh, who had specialties, and MGM had a very large unit that just made musicals. You know, they made Singing in the Rain and American Paris is a long, long list uh, because they had all these people under contract um, to, make, um, to make movie musicals. And all the way until I would say kind of like the late 50s, um, some of the, uh, you know, probably up to like maybe like West Side Story, um, the musical was pretty much very, thri- very th- much thriving. I think 
um, something that happened in the 60s is people's sensibilities started to change. Um, and the idea of like, you know, the jets and the sharks dancing in the street uh, while they're singing didn't seem to really jive very much, particularly when we get into like the late 60s. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think hindered the musical was it became more and more expensive to make movies in general. And it's very expensive to make musicals. And right. so it was it was easier <laughs> or cheaper just to not make them. By the time Greece sort of came around in the 70s, if you sort of look at the list, there's not really a whole lot. There's some bomb musicals like Clint Eastwood in Paint Your Wagon, if you've ever seen that. It's just like, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, love a good Clint e- I love a good Clint Eastwood musical. Um, <laughs> Lee Marvin and Gene Sieber. I think the reason why... Um, Greece was so popular like in the 70s is a few reasons. One is I think is because there was a wave of nostalgia uh, in the early 1970s in the United States. And it wasn't just in uh, film. It was also in theater as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a musical, uh, Follies, the Sondheim musical, which didn't make a lot of money mostly because I think it was expensive, which was also about these old showgirls like looking back at the past. Right. You also mm-hmm. had on television, and I think this is something that Greece benefited by. Uh, well, you also had American Graffiti uh, in the movie theaters, a George Lucas movie, which is mm-hmm. about you know 1962. And then you also had uh, Happy Days, the TV show, and Laverne and Shirley, which were both set in the 1950s. So there was this sort of kind of wave of nostalgia, which there often is after turbulent times, uh, the turbulent times being the late 1960s. We tend to go back and sort of think, uh, oh, wasn't life greater then or simpler then or more wonderful <laughs> then? Well, no, it wasn't because there was still, a, you know, there was still racism and segregation and all these things. But movies aren't going to actually deal, um, you know, TV shows and movies aren't usually going to deal with uh, that. They're very much white uh, centric. So I think that that's one of the, one of the things that the film benefited from was the sort of wave of nostalgia. Um, and also because I think it used pop, popular music. It used pop music. So you actually get, uh, really for the first time, a musical that also stars a recording star, which um, you know Olivia Newton-John was a huge recording star. And John Travolta, and I don't think Saturday Night Fever had come out yet, but he was a huge TV star, uh, because mostly because of Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, so it actually was this sort of perfect storm, I think, of all these different things uh, together. Yeah, I, feel, I think the nostalgia factor is one that continues to drive media today. Absolutely. I mean, look at something like Stranger Things. It, it like just capitalizes right. off of the love of the 80s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we as, you know, we as audience members love to reflect back, uh, like you said, right. on simpler times, especially when uh, we're going through like some like very trying times. And the thing about going back in time is what you're also getting usually is nostalgia for a media vision of the past because that's sort of what stranger things is with like with the 1980s is you're getting like pastiches and bits and pieces of 80s movies and the same thing actually with um the, the other thing that you um i'm trying to remember what it was the other thing that you just mentioned where you know well with, with greece really it because it's a lot like a movie uh you know there were rock and roll musicals in the 1950s these were not uh uh high budget films by any means, but mm-hmm. Columbia made a whole series of them where they actually put um, mostly black performers in these movies that had these very, very thin plots. And they were just there to showcase um, 
the acts and Alan Freed, who was this DJ was in these movies. I mean, they're really, they're sort of amusing to watch because it's like, Hey gang, listen to this, <laughs> you know, and then, <laughs> or people would watch, turn on their television and be a show like American bandstand. And you'd right. be watching, you know, sort of acts uh, perform. So it comes from a little bit of that. I mean, I think uh, Greece on stage was, was considered more like a rock and roll musical. Right. I don't know so much in terms of, uh, the film the film's a little bit more on the pop side mm -hmm. yeah and that that's kind of the one thing that i kind of cite about this movie of what we can how it's an example of what we can learn from us as audience goers is that we do love um obviously music that we can recognize because it's so you know easily digestible and again going back to like um we've mentioned it before like we love escapism so nostalgia is the perfect gateway to do that in art like going back to a time where you're just like, wow, this is so different, but it feels so real. And, um, you know, seeing everyone in this movie with the poofy long dresses that go down to their ankles and the old cars um, and the hairstyles are just awesome. And you're just like, wow, the fifties are just such a, like a com almost a completely foreign time because obviously as far as the younger generation, we don't have any real connections to them all that much. Uh, and, and then yes, with the with the pop music, and it is, it, it is much more pop. It's not like like something like Jesus Christ Superstar, which we've also talked on this show, is so radical in terms of a musical just because of how hard the rock music is, and it's right. just music, like it's all just sung through of this right. very like an opera, yeah, yeah, like an opera, very um, methodic music told through very hard rock, which was not as accepted in uh, American culture. Or just yet you know it was still there was still a divide of fans uh of people who were interested in that whereas greece is much um more pedestrian if that makes sense um, well yeah I, it was you know it was designed to appeal to the widest audience possible and mm -hmm. one way of doing that is making you don't want music to be too hardcore uh right. rock i mean you wanted to you know in in some ways um, make it much more kind of accessible and have much wider appeal, which the film actually does mm -hmm. um, and did have it, you know, when it came out. Right. Um, and before we get into talking about Greece, the deep dive, I'm curious, what is your relationship to the musical genre in general? Like, did you grow up like with a lot of musicals? Have you always been a personal fan or did you not necessarily appreciate them until later? Like what? what no, your... I mean, I always liked musicals um, since mm -hmm. I was a kid. Um, they were the kind of movies that I would not hesitate watching the same movie over and over again. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't mean just like, you know, everyone watched the wizard of Oz when it was on, but I mean, movies, you know, film versions of musicals like bye bye birdie, um, things that even weren't necessarily like kind of great films, um, but it was kind of a way to, I mean, it really, for me, was kind of like a personal um, escape, if anything, um, to sort of watch. I mean, I really liked old MGM movie musicals. I mean, some of them, I thought the ones that, there, I mean, there are some that are a bit of a snore, like American in Paris, which everybody loves. I mean, I, I like singing in the rain, um, mm -hmm. you know, so I mean, I sort of have my kind of favorites and so on. Um, it was the later ones I was a little turned off by. I felt like Hollywood was just, you know, like the paint, paint your wagon, which for some reason is embedded in my mind because my parents brought us to the drive-in. <laughs> and even then when I was like, you know, how old was I? I was like seven or eight thinking, why are we watching this? This is just awful. These people mm -hmm. can't sing. 
you know, it became a little bit more critical, um, especially because you see these big splashy MGM musicals where everyone is like really talented. And then to sort of just try to turn any musical from the stage onto uh, things. And I think West Side Story was another really big, um, you know, one of those films that I would watch every time it was on. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is you're where you are today because of Paint Your Wagon. That's that's what I'm getting. Oh, God. <laughs> it's so funny. I was just watching a movie about Gene Seberg, and they were, part of the plot is she got the script to Paint Your Wagon and thought, how can I be in this? I'm not a singer. Well, you know, you're, you're in good company because nobody is. Uh, and it's just not a very good – I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's not like I'd I've recommend seen some it to of it. anybody. It's just not a very good – film when they 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 made fun of it on the simpsons on one of their episodes and when i saw that i was like i was like that can't be real and then i looked it up and i watched oh yeah and i'm like this is one of the most ridiculous things i've ever seen it's so crazy um and you know because of that the movie musical has now turned into more so adaptations than original musicals i mean obviously there have been some exceptions to that, um, like La La Land and The Greatest Showman pro- proved to be very successful in terms of original content. Right. Um, what do you feel is like the biggest difference uh, between adaptations for film uh, of more recent years than, say, the classical era? Because obviously the technology has changed quite a bit in certain directing styles. Like, What do you feel is the, uh, has changed so much in terms of how people adapt musicals for film? Well, I think if you're talking about like adapting something like Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera, you know, things turning them into movies, I think what you have to be probably much more conscious of is your fan base. Um, you know, mm-hmm. people tend to be very um, uh, have very strong opinions about yes. when you're adapting something about how faithful and true it is. Uh, you have to kind of you can't ignore the fans. You have to kind of acknowledge the fact that there are. Um, that there are fans. Um, the, you know, the musicals in the 1950s were a little bit more on the, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but they were a little bit more sort of formulaic. I mean, what's really interesting about Greece is it happened in the mid seventies and one would think, Oh, this movie made so much money. It was the highest grossing musical for a long time that, Oh, uh, everyone's going to now make musicals. And it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like there was this musical explosion. I mean, the next really kind of really big high grossing movie musical was, was Chicago. And they were trying to right. make Chicago for years. They were trying to make Chicago like for three decades. One of the other big challenges is about talent. Um, is, is there people that you can actually put into a musical uh, <laughs> who yeah. are stars, who are bankable stars, because there's much more. I mean, in, in the 50s, all those people were, um, I don't know if this is really answering your question, but all those people were on their contract, and that's what they did. They did musicals. Now you think about it, okay, who are you going to put in uh, a musical? You know, And I guess Liz, Les Miserables got it right, except for Russell Crowe. Uh, oh God! Um, I just was watching that the other day, and I think, oh my God, it's like cut to the person. He just can't. He just you know he can't. No, he can't. Yeah. Well, and he's next to Hugh Jackman, and Hugh Jackman is sort of like somebody who would have a thriving career in the fifties as well. I think because he he's so talented, has such a beautiful voice, and he's very very masculine. Um, you know, he's like sort of the ideal uh, for the leading man of, right. of a musical. Um, but if you think about it, you know, you can kind of count the people maybe on your finger, your hand. 
of, <laughs> of who you would actually cast in a musical uh, that are stars. And that's what I'm talking about here. It's like people who are sort of bankable um, stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of risk. Emma Stone, you know, a lot of people I know who are real big musical fans did not like her in the movie because they felt like she can't sing. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't sweeten her voice, you know, it was not. It's it's her singing voice. It's like okay, but it's not great. You never could get away with that in the 1950s, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In the thing, I mean, those were all people that were like, you know, nurtured to be uh, musical stars. But right. like, who? Like, if you had to cast people, who would you cast now? In a, uh, you know, and you think about stars in a musical. I mean, Nicole Kidman can kind of sing. Everybody's like a little bit kind of. Um, sort of like, okay, Renee Zellweger's okay. Mm-hmm. But nobody to me is like as, as, as amazing as people like from the 50s, I think. You know, sort of the Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds and all those people. Yeah, it seems as, as though like a lot of people who they will get for certain musicals are either, it depends on what it is. Like if we like cite like Cats or something, they get a lot of people who have careers in music. And like not necessarily um, establish themselves as actors or the people that they get as actors um, for, for musicals are like, Oh, I can sing. I'll take some lessons and do something like right. they get, they get Tom Cruise for rock of ages and he starts, you know, going on yeah. the oh just God, yeah. lessons, which is, <laughs> I wanted to do that uh, on this show so bad, but we, it, it didn't come, it didn't come through. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, you're right that it definitely seems as though you have to get the person who is bankable in all aspects. And that's kind of what is wonderful about Greece is that John Travolta hits the mark on all three things. He can sing, he can dance and he can act. And he's so charismatic. And yes, <clears throat> just, and uh, there's chemistry between the two of them yes, as well. It, and, you know, she had been in one movie when she was really young and I don't think the movie was even, it was barely released. Uh, mm-hmm. Living in John, she didn't never had really aspirations, and it was really Alan Carr who produced this movie. Who we talked a little bit about. I mean, he's really kind of the brains behind Greece. Um, he put everything together. He's the one who supposedly he was at a dinner party and she was there and said, "Would you ever be interested in being in a thing?" And she's like, "Well, I don't know." She was very, very sort of tentative about the thing, and she thought she was too old, which she kind of is. Um, and she did a screen test with John Travolta, and they felt like there was enough chemistry. I think they did the scene where they're in the um, the drive-in in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, they she did a screen test, and uh, and I guess she nailed it because they um, because they hired her. But you know, one of the thing about this movie, kind of a bit of the joke, is how old are they? Um, yes. I think I figured out that the average age of all the the leads and the pink ladies and the, and the, you know, are, it's about 28 years old. <laughs> I think the oldest is, uh, uh, somebody I've met actually, Stocker Channing, who is in her like mid thirties and, right. mm-hmm. uh, played Rizzo. Um, and I think, uh, Kelly Ward and Dinah Manoff were kind of the younger people and they were like in their very early twenties. But there weren't really teenagers. Maybe one of them was 19, but there weren't really, these were not high school students by any means. And the problem that always arises is, is you can't then cast, if you're going to cast John Travolta and Olivia and John, you can't cast 17 year olds <laughs> no, <laughs> to be with them. So everybody had to be of the, of the age, you know, of the specific age group, mm-hmm. um, which is exactly what they did. 
and some people get away with it um more than others uh yes. for sure um let's get it before we get into the critical breakdown i gotta ask you said you met stalker channing i'm just curious i've always been a big fan of hers what was she like and what was <laughs> how, did, how did you come to meet her um oh she uh she was a, a f- friend of a friend of mine who works in the music business but that wasn't really why um he was i don't even know how he knew her um i went out on a boat with her actually <laughs> Uh, in Malibu she's very nice she's very uh she's very um um she she's nothing like Rizzo by any Uh means she's a little like uh blue blood ish and I don't mean that in a disparaging way but she's a little she's sophisticated let's say Mm -hmm. Uh, she's probably a little bit more like the character she plays in six degrees um of separation if you've ever seen that play uh or the movie um, you know, she's a little bit more sort of erudite um, than you think. She's very nice, you know, but mm-hmm. she's not. Uh, she actually, I think, even made a Rizzo joke when I was just uh, not that I prompted it, but you know, she's very much aware of uh-huh. you know, and she was very thankful, I think, that she actually got that part. Um, mm-hmm. She's the best actress, I think, of the cast. Of oh, absolutely, people, you know, absolutely, um, you know, she's she's by far, and they kind of needed. It was supposed to be Lucy Arnaz. Um, I don't know if you know who that is, but mm-hmm. Lucille Ball's daughter was going to play the part, um, was one of the people who was considered and almost got it. The, the story is that they uh, supposedly uh, uh, wanted her to audition and her mother would said, you're going to hire her, not have my daughter audition. Uh, so they didn't hire her. <laughs> so they ended up with that. But it, it was, you know, it was a bit of a search. Some of these people were actually in the show. You know, John Travolta was in the stage musical, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Played duty. Jeff Conaway was like the understudy for all the male parts. Um, Michael Tucci was in the was in the stage musical. So some of them actually were people from the stage. It was mostly the men um, had some association or connection to Greece. Well, with that, let's get into critical breakdown. There's a lot to talk about. Um, why don't we like staying on that subject of their ages? It's it's very clear. None of them look as though they're in high school, though. Some of them are able to get away with it more than others. Um, I, I honestly think that the the worst examples of, the, of that that I could see were um, Jeff Conaway's Kaneki, the guy who played Sonny and um, whoever plays Patty Simcox. All of them like Kaneki looks definitely looks like he's in his late twenties. Sonny looks like, uh, in his like 30s. Bert, he, he looks like he's, he looks like Burt young in Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> and then Patty Simcox looks like a 30 year old woman who's just hanging around running for vice right. president of the, of the student council. But like, there's something weird about it where I can still, I can get past it. You know, like I can yeah. look past it to get into, get into the story still. Yeah, I think it actually, I mean, because the focus really is on, um, the thing that really has to work, I think, is Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. And Mm -hmm. if you, you know, then if you can sort of get past them, all the other people, it doesn't seem to matter, um, you know, so much. And, you know, they they have them, they're in high school, it's more like they're in college almost. Um, It's in terms of the way that they're behaving, uh, they behave like older 
high school students, not like, you know, not like their first year um, high school students. Um, but I, I definitely agree with sort of your assessment uh, of them. And, you know, Alan Carr, um, I don't know if you know anything about Alan Carr. He's probably most famous for probably the worst Academy Award show. Um, it's the one where Rob Lowe was dancing with Snow White. This was the 19, there's a 1989, <laughs> Google it. You can watch it. Oh my God. Oh, is, is this the, the year that, um, is this the year that like Dances with Wolves won or? Um... Uh, no, it was a Rain Man, I think won. That Rain year. Man, okay. Yeah. yeah. But um, he he opened the show with this campy thing and at one point Snow White, and I think Disney sued. Uh, Snow White was dancing with Rob Lowe as Prince Charming. And it was just a, tr- it was, he almost got kicked out of the Academy. I don't think he did. So that's what he's probably most famous for. He was like this very flamboyant showman. And Robert Stigwood, who is a British producer who produced a lot of music and Bee Gees and, uh, and Saturday Night Fever, you know, Alan Carr was the person he hired to take care, uh, is sort of, uh, oversee Greece. Um, and one thing that he did do, which I thought was smart, was uh, he put in a lot of actors from the 1950s who parents would recognize. And they did the same thing in beach party movies. Beach party movies were these very sort of campy Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon, who's actually in Greece, mm-hmm. um, uh, movies. And he, they, in, back then in the 60s, they put like Buster Keaton. They put old stars, uh, some from TV and some from film. So what they did is kind of peppered this a little bit with the actors who play like the principals, Eve Arden and the coach and so on. These were all Joan Blondell. Um, these were all people your parents would recognize because they're people mm-hmm. that they grew up watching on television. I, I think that was a really smart thing to do. Some of the people he tried to get in <laughs> one time, they actually were going to uh, cast uh, actually the star of deep throat was going to play the, um, uh, a porn star was going to, Harry Reams was going to play the coach and Paramount said, no, 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 you can't do that. Uh, so they nixed that. So, you know, he was, he was somebody who was really good at, um, at sort of like getting all these people and putting them all, um, you know, and sort of putting them all together. So, but I digress. So let, yeah. let's talk about. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think another interesting uh, choice that they made, and obviously this has to do with just the, the story in general and an easier way for them to mask the fact that everyone is obviously much older than in high school is the only adults that we see in the movie are like professor teachers and the principal at the school. We don't see anyone's parents. We don't right. like, or the, um, the older woman who works at the, um, uh, the frozen polar like yeah. ice cream shop, essentially. Yeah. Um, I like, I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine Jeff Conway going home and getting into an argument with like his mom and dad, like that just, and how like, old make- and how old would they be? They'd be like yeah. in their sixties, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it would, um, it wouldn't make sense. So it just, it, it works well to just, um, to just see them and you're like, okay, I can at least see if they're all at least somewhat around the same age, like in look, right. then you can get past it. And also and that everyone co- has that good comes from the stage that comes from the stage musical too. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There's no parents or anything. There's the, I think there's only the print, the female principal um, mm-hmm. of the school uh, and no other adults that are in the show. Right. Yeah. The coach and the, um, uh, 
and the malt shop lady are made for the for the movie and yeah. um, but also like everyone has like really good chemistry with each other i feel like the the pink ladies and the t-birds both are good groups of of people that you can tell that they are friends and have known each other for yeah. like a while and and they're obviously they're like dating each other and it works like i i, I buy it personally yeah. like i can get in like okay these are at least you know these two groups of friends who have known each other for ever and are cohesive groups and i like that i mean the t-birds and, some and the of those ladies people, they're iconic yeah and some of those people knew each other i mean i think mm-hmm. jeff conaway and josh Revolta knew each other um because of the stage um because of the stage musical i mean what i read was that uh the first thing they did is they actually had a sock hop um with um <laughs> and got the whole cast together. Um, and some of the people actually did know each other, but I think what you're sensing is actually the thing that they were kind of going for was to make it seem that these people were lifelong friends that had been through high school, you know, with obviously mm-hmm. Sandy being kind of the outsider. Um, and a lot of that has to do also with Patricia Birch, who is the choreographer, who um, then directed Grease 2, which we can mention at the end. Uh, but, um, as I shudder, um, but, um, the, um, you know, she was known for being a choreographer who could get people who couldn't really dance to dance. That was sort of her specialty. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that she was really good at kind of creating that sort of uniform and, you know, kind of bringing everybody together. And she didn't just do that for the cast. I don't know if you've ever noticed in this film, which is very rare in a film, all the other kids that are in the school, it's the same kids throughout the entire film, Mm -hmm. throughout the whole film, um, which you don't usually see. I mean, a lot of times in musicals, you see people in the background, you know, that that are, let's call them the chorus, and then they're in a number, but then you don't see them again, you know. And she actually, you know, chose, I don't know if they're like 20, like 10 men and 10 women who are the ones who are in the dances, and they... um, she had them come up with a character. They had to come up with a name for their character and who they are. And she purposely wanted it to be that they would appear in all the musical numbers. So anytime there was like anybody dancing uh, in the background, like from, you know, like summer lovers in the beginning um, or even the the dance at the gym and so on, it was actually the same, um, uh, the same teenagers, same dancers. They're all in their, mostly, I think, in their in their twenties at the time. Uh, it might not be something you even recognize, but I do think it kind of adds uh, somewhat to the kind of uh, you know sort of that sense that you feel like these people all know each other. You know, friendships a hard thing to do in movies because you're putting mm-hmm. two people together and say, okay, you're lifelong friends, and it's like, eh. you know, you can only. <laughs> it's a hard thing to fake. Yeah. Um, you know, it has to be like this. You know, and you kind of do get a sense. If it, I think it actually uh, works in the film. I agree, and I, as I was watching it last night, I, I noticed like some like some people like in the background of summer nights, and then you yeah like you see them in like their own individual shots in the gym when they're yeah. doing hand jive. I was noticing, I was like, wow, these actually do look like the same. Like you could tell yeah. that they were used they throughout, were, yeah. mm-hmm. and it works. It's like a full unit kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about um, John Fulton and Olivia Newton John because, like we said there. They work so well together. It's like it's honestly like a an example of perfect casting in my mind of just the pair of them. Regardless of how terrible the opening scene is when they're at the beach, I'm on board for like everything else that they do like in the movie. I've just I I love seeing them together. Um, and the the obviously we'll talk about like how the their, their relationship and the message that that's sending a little bit later. But like 
they are very clearly like so into the movie and the energy that they give like um you can definitely tell that uh olivia newton john is just this is not only the outsider but is this um very uh clean and um wholesome person who doesn't like to uh you know go against the rules and is the she's the sandra d character she fits that bill right. really well and and john travolta is the to me when i was a kid john travolta in this movie was the epitome of cool i was like this guy is when like when he's in summer nights and he goes down and does the dance like on the bleachers that was the coolest thing in the world to me i was i was like yes i i was in and i i've always loved both of them in this movie um, his character is kind of a variation of what he did on television. I don't know if you've ever seen an episode of Welcome Back, Cotter. I have. Um, mm-hmm. But he played Vinnie Barbarino, who was kind of like the, you know, the guy in the leather jacket who was cool. And it was right. just like everything he said and everything he did was um, was cool. So um, that's why he became sort of the perfect um, um, kind of Danny Zuko. Uh, and I agree with you. There was, there's something cool about him, but he's kind of like accessible, cool, uh, you know, kind of like the cool kid that maybe you would hang out with as opposed mm-hmm. to like, uh, you know, because they're supposed to be like, they're a gang, but I mean, really are they, I mean, yeah. <laughs> just cause you wear a leather jacket <laughs> and have a thing on the back of it doesn't really make you, I mean, they purposely did not make them like they were, uh, you know, a gang, like, you know, they're out mm-hmm. causing trouble. I mean, they're pretty much as squeaky clean in some ways. Um, you know, even the pink ladies are, they're all pretty squeaky clean. Uh, yeah. for, um, you know, so even though, uh, Livy Newton John is very sort of Sandra D, uh, you know, the other ones are not as, you know, we, well, the only thing we know is that Rizzo goes all the way basically. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's about it. Yes. Yeah. Very true. And, and like, they they're smoke. Har- and they, yeah, they smoke. They're like harmless pranksters, and they have yeah. like stupid insults for pretty much ev- everyone. Right. Um. And and that's pretty much it. It's not like like if someone like like if someone like pulled a knife out. Like if it if if the final fight between the scorpions and the T birds was like a literal like fight. Like it would right. be in like West Side Story instead of a car chase. It would right. just be. It would be so it just wouldn't fit. It would be like just a complete dark turn from the, from the rest of the show. Right. And I mean, the car thing is nobody gets hurt. Yeah. (laughs) There's no harm done, you know, (laughs) in the whole thing. They don't even do it on the street, which is where Mm -hmm. the whole point about drag racing is you're drag racing on the street. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, they're doing it, you know, down by the the river, the LA river, the gulch. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And, just and I mean the we talked about how easily uh, accessible the music is. There are like a countless number of iconic songs in this show. I mean, obviously, "Summer Nights" is a really great just intro to their actual love story, uh, and "Grease Lightning," which was when I saw again, like when I saw that as a kid, I was mesmerized. Um, I I did just his a clear imitation of Elvis. And his command of that entire song, uh, and when he goes under the car and it changes to uh, this like almost fantasy, I was like, "What?" Like <laughs> I couldn't believe yeah. it as a kid. Uh, and 
it's so like how could you not get into it at that point? Like every who's not tapping their foot when they're listening to Grease Light? And I and I think the idea of turning that into the fantasy uh, in some ways makes it more accessible because it makes it more like it's not real. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of very much out of a um, 50s musical, you know, where they would have like these dream sequences or they would have, <clears throat> you know, these musical numbers that would actually occur that you're supposed to believe, you know, is this really happening or not? And so, you know, you have like beauty school dropout and you have, um, um, you know, Grease Lightning. I mean, some of those songs are in the show uh, and some of them were written, mostly the ones that she sings were written by her person person who Mm -hmm. wrote songs for Olivia Newton-John. And they're actually pretty well integrated where it doesn't suddenly feel like, oh, this is a, you know, um, the the big problem they had, not a problem, big issue was the opening song, uh, Grease, which was written for the film. And it Mm -hmm. was written by, I think, Barry Gibb, one of the Bee Gees wrote it. Mm -hmm. And the filmmaker didn't like the song. They wanted it to be more, um, you know, the question is, do you make it like 50s-ish or do you make it contemporary? And he think, I think he felt like it was a little maybe too contemporary. Um, but, um, but I think it actually works. And I think the animated sequence in the beginning of the film works um, as well. I think it's a great I way agree. to open the film. Yeah, and you, it, you get those kind of, it is an almost iconic animation style with, you know, just seeing how everyone gets up for the day to start school and seeing... Right like all like everything that's in the town and um and then it like fades in on the school i, and I, it, I love that song yeah and i think it establishes the idea that this isn't really real because <laughs> when you're starting with animated images of people i mean right. it kind of gives it a uh, cartoonish uh uh bent to it and i don't mean that in cartoonish in a negative thing i just mean that it's not going to be in reality i mean where, where, where do you think this film is supposed to take place uh well when when they zoom in or when they fade in on the actual school it doesn't look like a school to me it looked like a a municipal building that's in los angeles or something so i assumed that it was in california partly because of like the where yeah where the school is and the um the with the fact that they're just like at the beach all the time but the suburbs look like something like the suburbs up in new york like i don't right it's like a very weird place which i mean i guess is their their yeah. idea because it could take place really anywhere but it's the I, exteriors I don't of the school it's actually venice high school mm-hmm. uh, in venice uh so it, it's close to the beach um but it's an old high school it's an old high school from i think it was built in the 50s oh, okay. um which, which is where they shot it um you know the the thing is i mean the original musical took place in chicago in the suburbs of chicago um, and they don't, they don't never reveal where it is. I mean, but you're right. There's a beach. Um, mm-hmm. there's also palm trees in the background, uh, yes. if you look closely, <laughs> yes. which is a little bit like, you know, it's not something that they bothered hiding, uh, but yeah. it's not something that it's so pronounced that you would even notice it. I mean, there's palm trees in the background of Halloween, so, right. which takes place mm-hmm. in Illinois and outside of Chicago. So, uh, you know, so there, so. Yeah. And to kind of talk about the what the the transition that they made from stage um, to the screen here is that one of the biggest problems, this is also an example of uh, where I feel that the movie at least improved upon the show um, quite a bit because of uh, what they did with certain songs. The biggest problem I feel with the musical is that none of the songs really 
add that much to the story. There's so many that just like the like Grease Lightning in the show is cool, but like that plot doesn't come back. Whereas in the movie, it actually makes is part of the right. story. And then, but the musical also has Marty singing a song. She sings Freddie, my love. And uh, like it's raining on prom night. Like it, it feels, it just feels so weird. It's just almost, and like rock and roll party queen. Like they put yeah. songs from the musical in that the, just the band sings Right. Uh, and at yeah. the at the dance, which was I thought was a, a good choice on the, on their part. Um, whereas like, yeah, they they make the car um, like make Grease Lightning that story plot a little bit more pronounced in the movie. It's still kind of ridiculous, um, but at least they uh, went for it a little bit more. I think the difference is the musical, the stage musical was conceived as being a showcase for songs. Mm-hmm. where it's the songs that are actually the thing that are being foregrounded. And what connects them is this very, very loose and thin plot. And in the film, they're much more integrated um, into like, you know, like you suggest, like the idea of like Grease Lightning actually has something to do with anything where it's kind of like uh, sitting around saying, okay, for the stage, you know, let's do a song about a car. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and we'll put it in the show, and that's sort of what. If you look at all the songs, they are all like that. They don't, you know. Generally, you know, when you think of musicals and what's the purpose of a song, usually it's to express something or it can move the plot along. Like someone makes a decision in the course of a song, um, and you don't really have that in um, in the stage musical. Everything just sort of stops and they sing. Like she sings "Friday My Love," you know. Mm-hmm. Stop and you sing a song, um, and the ones that they kind of do use where have actually more to do with the plot because, you know, uh, you know, summer loving actually is about uh, the idea that they're telling these two different stories about how they met. Um, and then they meet and then you find out they're in the same school and blah, 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 as opposed to just being a song that two people are, um, are singing. And then the mm-hmm. other ones, like the ballads that she sings, it's, it's very much about how she sort of feels, you know, um, mm-hmm. and of course, because she was a huge recording star, uh, and they were thinking about, you know, not just, and this is really something we didn't even touch on, but the soundtrack was, the high, you know, this was the highest grossing film in 1978. It's the fifth best selling soundtrack of a movie, uh, still. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, it, you know, this was all conceived. This wasn't just like a mis- happened by chance. This was all thought of very clear, you know, it was all sort of thought out that this isn't going to be just about a movie. It's also going to be about a soundtrack. Um, and mm-hmm. the fact that they had her, if anything, uh, because she was such a huge, um, you know, she was such a huge recording star. So they were selling the film, but they were also selling the soundtrack. And, and sell it. They did. I mean, it's in my car right now. Um, I still listen to it like all the time. I listen it's, to it too. Yeah. It's, it's so great. And I mean, it's, it also part of it is nostalgia for me because of how many memories it brings back. Like I, um, and I want to get into the, the hand jab scene because that scene might be one of the most important to me because like I would, I learned the entire dance that, uh, oh, God. John Travolta <laughs> and, uh, Olivia Newton-John do like when they come on, they start doing yeah. that. I learned that entire thing and would perform it for people at like parties. It was my, oh my <laughs> favorite thing as a kid, like that entire scene, just 
Well, first of all, it's funny just to see how certain people are dancing, like in, in the fact that some people are obviously really bad at it. Like the one guy who's trying to like get over his girlfriend and they both fall on the floor. Right. Like is really funny. Um, and, um, but, and also Jeff Conway, say what you want about him in this movie is just going crazy as a dancer. He is like, you know, doing the split and then like right. does the hand jive when he falls back. I was just like, this is, is so much energy and so many things going on. And ev- and everyone's a good dancer, like pretty much like everyone, like yeah. um, in their move, they were just, it was so cool. Like I was, and I mean, John Travolta in it is doing everything almost effortlessly. Like yeah. how he go that whole like five minute sequence where he's just dancing and then he goes with cha-cha yeah. was amazing to me. And I, I, I got goosebumps watching it last night. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, it was actually still so much fun. There's one cast member who is not a dancer and disappears a lot. Do you know, mm-hmm. can you figure out who it is? Probably it's one of the Duty. women. Oh, it's, it's one of the women? Uh, yeah, it's Dinah Manoff, was not a dancer. Oh, and so is she, she kind of she kind of fades <laughs> away <laughs> or is doing other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Even when they're singing, like, Summer Nights and stuff, you know, she doesn't – and she admitted it. You know, she admitted that she wasn't a dancer, and you know they would have these auditions where they bring all these people in, and you know I think um, the whole thing about Patricia Birch is she wanted it to be a combination of people who were um, like you know Jeff Conaway, people who were like kind of dancers, and then people that were could move, uh, but maybe weren't dancers, and that was sort of like I said <clears throat> before, that was sort of her specialty was to be able to um, do that. That's a, that is a really good sequence, that whole dance in the gym um, mm-hmm. thing, which in the show is sort of like a thing that happens when they sing Born in the Hand Jive, I think. Is that in the yeah. Show? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but it's a much bigger thing in the, um, in the musical, as it should be, uh, you know, sort of this iconic you know, sort of dance, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of dance in the gym. And it's so, uh, like, just like, the camera focuses on so many different things and it's what's great about it is that you know the groups start to get whittled down and everyone is doing like so many different things you can right. focus on these two people and then these two people and then this whole right. group like these three people come out and then they're in lines and it also right. goes through like five or six different songs while while they're there so and there's not really any stakes in it necessarily but it's still fun to watch and that kind of gets right. into my my biggest problem with Greece is as much as I love it as much as as much fun as it is to watch the story I think is is kind of trash I I don't think that it, it's not as thought out like like I was saying earlier there's eight different subplots going on and there's there's so much that I don't really understand about certain choices that are made and particularly like, okay, so, so first we're focused on Danny and Sandy. And then, then we talk about how, uh, Frenchie is dropping out of high school to go to beauty school. And then like 10 minutes later, she's dropped out of that. And then, you know, Rizzo and Kinnicky are having their conflict and she might be pregnant, but then she's not. It's it's all over the place. Yeah. Well, you know, Randall Kleiser uh, uh, published a book, I think, last year, uh, The Director's Notebook, and it has the script in it. And there were things that were cut out uh, it, oh, really? that add a little bit to uh, some of the things that you're actually talking about. And I think what you're describing, like the thing with Frenchie, is it's very much from the um, – from the stage musical where that is a set piece her singing that song is exactly they don't really change anything 
basically mm-hmm. I'm going to drop out and then they sing beauty school drop out. And then all of a sudden she's back in. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it all happens in, you know, um, it's almost like everybody's being given a piece of business to do, you know, something to do in terms mm-hmm. of their characters, even if it's not a major conflict or anything like really, really, um, you know, sort of important. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of that is a holdover from the, from the stage musical, uh, the sort of thin plot, you know, the sort of thin plot, um, and to try to keep it probably focused mostly on Sandy and, um, uh, and Danny. I mean, from what I remember about the show, I mean, Sandy and Danny, it's not as central because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a lot of all these other musical numbers, like you mentioned before, that people are singing that have nothing to do with the actual, um, with the actual story. Yeah, there's, and it, and it jumps around a lot because of that. So yeah. in the in the dance scene and for hand jive, so well the the problem the, the the thing that I didn't that I had kind of forgotten about is that so once Danny and Sandy get together, Sandy realizes oh this guy actually has this other persona and is this completely different guy than the person that I met over the summer, and she's crushed by that, um, and then she leaves him and goes with the other guy Troy or whatever the tool that that sports jock guy is right um but and then he kind of takes his um you know goes through the measures of trying to get her back gets on the sports team but like the the problem is is it seems like he's is Danny is being judged by the other members of the T-Birds because it's like yo what are you doing with this girl like what right and then but it's almost on and off just because there are scenes where it's, they're so clearly together and have affection for each other and are like spending time with one another. Right. But there is no other, but there's still judgment and yet they're keeping it a secret. So like there's that scene where they go uh, again to the malt shop and they're trying to talk. So they put the menus up, but then everyone else comes over and they're like, Hey guys, what's going on? And then they leave together. And then at the dance scene, when Danny is with Sandy, they're dancing and then he sees Chacha, he like pushes her away and pretends that he's by himself and right. then like takes her back. It's like, it's so weird. It almost feels like, like I don't really understand it because it seems like the conflict of Zook, what are you doing? This is not who you are kind of goes away and he's, but he's still conflicted about it. Right. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Like that was just, yes, like, it does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it basically what there is no follow through. Uh, it's, it's sort of like ideas on an index card. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like things are not really kind of follow through in terms of the plot. They, they, uh, kind of insert all these things and they're, they all seem sort of relatively minor in the way that thing. And you kind of have expectations that things are going to go somewhere. Like, for example, I remember when I first saw it and the idea that Rizzo is the one who, uh, sets Sandy up to see, uh, Danny again, remember mm-hmm. at the bonfire and you get the idea that she's doing it uh, to be vindictive. Right. And why? Was she involved with Danny before? I mean, and you think, oh, this is going to be like a triangle or a rivalry. That never happens. No. All of a sudden, now she's, <laughs> you know. And it seems like it's a, a lot of things are kind of set up for things, and they're actually never sort of um, followed through. And then all of a sudden, we can talk about this, this transformation that she makes uh, yes. at the end. Um, and compared to his transformation, which is just simply putting on a Letterman sweater, and suddenly we find out he was in track, 
and no one else yes. seemed to know. Uh, it comes out of nowhere. But he has to do that. She has to put on this, uh, you know, cat suit and be sewed mm-hmm. into it and looking like I don't know what. I mean, I remember seeing this and thinking in the show, the transformation is like minor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that she makes at the end. It's not like, I, I, you know, I don't even know what to say, what she's trying to sort of look like. I mean, it's obviously they're trying to sex her up. And the funny thing is Olivia Newton-John is not like that. I mean, not that she's beautiful, she's very beautiful, but her image has always been sort of, uh, you know, being sort of like the good girl, pure, you know, she's sort of with, with the voice and so on. You don't expect her to be looking like that. And um, uh, apparently some people didn't even recognize her on the set of the <laughs> thing because they saw this woman with, you know, apparently members of the crew didn't know who it was because they're so used to seeing Sandy looking like a Bobby Sox, you know, Bobby Soxer. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as to say the positive about that section first is that, I mean, you're the one that I want. Everyone knows that song. And they both sound so good. It is an iconic musical theater duet. And it's, and then it leads into, you know, um, we go together, which it, it's so fun to watch them kind of just go through the fun house. And uh, I love, I love a good duet in musical theater when it's like, yeah. it actually like feels good. Um, it's staged really well. Yeah. And it is staged really well. And, um, and they both sound like it's the best that they sound in the whole uh, in the whole movie, I feel. Right. Um, but the the movie like tries to set up his transformation a little bit better, just because they have that whole scene where he goes and tries out for right. the basketball team, and then the baseball team, and then the right. uh, running track. Um, and I can commend the movie on that, but uh, it it's just that. And that's in the second act. It's like the beginning of the second act. And then they cut to the end where she's... Right. she's and all of a sudden he has a Letterman yeah. sweater on. And it's yeah. like, what? And that, yeah. that doesn't really fall through. Also, the coach is probably the worst coach that has like ever like taught sports. He's literally just like, okay, so you're just coming. You want to come try out. All right, let's try. Let's try basketball. Here's the ball. Okay, Go. And that's it. Yeah. Same with wrestling. It's just like, all right, lay down. This is going to be your Said partner. Caesar, yeah. Yeah. And he's just yeah. like, go like, that's it. You're like, you're not actually coaching. You're not telling him to do anything, right. but that's yeah. a, that's a nitpick. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, and so what did you think about her when you first saw her for the first time? <laughs> uh, I was blown away for sure. I, I did not see that, uh, did not see her transformation coming. And as a little kid, I was, I definitely, you know, glorified her image after that. I was like, what? <laughs> like, uh, so I, I was definitely in one of the many people who had seen this movie for the first time who was just enthralled. Um, but the more that I have watched it and the more like years later, like I think when I finally had seen it, um, I think I saw a stage production of it, a local one when I was like 15 and the actual um, weight of the message that that scene is yeah. perpetuating started to sink in yeah and i was like i still love this song but like this is actually a really bad message to to send because sure like again like i said the movie tries to s- say here's he's he's trying to change he's trying to win her back by having that having that sports section but it doesn't come back and then 
and then he takes his jacket off and throws it away like it doesn't even matter and right. she has obviously gone through this completely different yeah. physical transformation and you're like so only she has to change for everything to be okay and in order to achieve the love and um you know relationship that you want you have to just completely change who you are like that's not well <laughs> i think that it's a leftover from the original original show mm-hmm. uh that was uh at the time pretty subversive you know from 1971 and the idea that the good girl becomes like sort of creates this image of the bad girl but you know this was like this fringe musical that was being done in a you know uh you know, in a theater in Chicago and then all of this, and they actually did the original version in Chicago, I think about three years ago, three or four years ago on oh, wow. the first, for the first time, really. Um, it was actually done in a, in a Chicago theater. Um, but it's kind of this leftover and it's a little, it doesn't exactly jive with the rest of the film. And <laughs> they made it so extreme um, the way that she looks um mm-hmm. it's interesting if you read the reviews of it the way that critics describe it um they use rather uh interesting words to describe what she looks like because mm-hmm. yeah you know, it looks from everything from like a showgirl to looking like a prostitute oh looking God. like you know because it's so because ex- it is so kind of extreme mm-hmm. um and seems very sort of out of place um i guess she looks a little bit like cha-cha looks <laughs> Uh, that's what you know, I was they, thinking too. They have yeah. fairly like the same hairstyle. Obviously, their hair color is right. different, but it, it, their style looked the same. Like wearing tight, yeah, wearing like tight clothing. I mean, it's a little even more extreme, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, but it's the idea because she's supposed to be like the bad girl from Sir Bit right. Saint Bernadette, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. So it's sort of modeled after that. Uh, people don't really talk very much about the message of it. It seems that it kind of like you know because mm-hmm. you think of most things that are teen oriented, you know, usually the message is be yourself, you know, don't compromise your values. You should yes. be honest <laughs> with yourself and blah, blah, blah. And here you get something that's completely, uh, reverses, uh, that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. keeping on that track, I mean, let's just go to the analysis section to dive deeper into that. So let's go to analyze this. continuing on the transformation side is like I said, when, once the movie starts to focus on the um, like after she leaves him at the drive-in, the movie then just yep. completely switch, switches focus to just being about the race at thunder road with grease lightning. And Sandy almost just kind of disappears and we right. don't like She's in the background, see it. Yeah. Yeah. And then she comes to the race and then is like, she sees that Danny is um, become like has everyone around her because he won like yeah and then she's like well goodbye to Sandra D like that actually kind of, like when I was watching it that actually kind of made me feel even more sad like knowing what happens I was like oh that I kind of feel bad for her you know well I mean one way you can sort of look at it is maybe uh, what we're seeing at the end is her authentic self Mm-hmm. And maybe some, you know, uh, not to be too Freudian, but maybe she is this sort of repressed uh, girl, and it sort of has unleashed, in some ways, who she really is. So even so, not thinking of it as so much 
as masquerading as something that you're not or having to become something you're not, but maybe this is actually who you are. Mm. Uh, if you think about it in reverse, that maybe being the good girl is the thing that she had to be. I mean, you know, we don't get a whole lot <laughs> in, yeah, no, in terms of, uh, you know, her background or any, you know, anything like that. But the idea that maybe she felt like she had to play the part of being the good girl and the cheerleader, you know, and so on. Uh, so maybe what we're really getting is the authentic Sandy at the end. Yeah, it's kind of hard to connect the dots when the dots are only kind of like half drawn in. And right. Kind of have to yeah. make some, <laughs> make a, some some leaps to get there. Um, the the one we haven't talked a lot about. Um, I saved talking about Rizzo to this section because I, I wanted to kind of look at her arc and particularly um, the song that she sing, sings. There are worse things I can do, which yeah. is one of the best songs, if not honestly like the best song in the show. It's like perfectly yeah. great musical theater, um, and she is easily the best actress. Like I'm actually really happy that Stalker Channing has gone on to um, have like still a very rich career. Like, you know, you said she had six degrees of separation and obviously her incredible run on the West wing, um, and continues to actually show that she is a wonderful actress and can play, you know, a wide range of parts. Um, that whole storyline is so interesting to include because that plays into what we were talking about earlier of how, you know, these teens are having to deal with problems that they haven't had to deal with at this point, the possibility of a, um, uh, of being pregnant and then uh, everyone finding out about it literally as she's walking back to her car um, at the drive-in. Like that's, yeah. that's awful. Yeah. Um, and funny, I think actually yeah. <laughs> the idea well, that you tell, you tell somebody a secret mm-hmm. and then it gets back to her that, um, you know, it gets back to her that, uh, that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, her character probably has the best character arc in the whole, um, you know, in the whole thing, because you kind of understand sort of who she is, mm-hmm. you know, and she's, you're right. She sings that song. And I think it's actually the best song because it's the best character song that's most revealing about somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I, most of the other songs are about, I love you. You know, it's sort of just very surface, but she actually sings that song. It's very, very effective in the show because it's like, I know I'm the, you think of me as the bad girl, but there's more to me than that, you know, and the idea mm-hmm. that um, I'm not going to let you see me be vulnerable. And the scene, I, the, the, the little, little moment I always liked in it was, and I don't even remember if it's in the show, I don't think it is, is when Sandy's like sympathetic to her, not judgmental, but sympathetic, and, uh, and she thanks her. And, you know, she was pretty rotten to her, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, making fun of her for a long time. And she actually, what I like about it is that, that Olivia and John is very good at being, you know, playing empathetic, uh, is empathetic to her and expresses that. And, and she's, you know, then she, her response is like being the tough girl. Oh, you know, I'm fine. But then she, there's a pause and then she actually says, to, thanks her. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is actually a really nice moment. I think what we want in this film are more of those human moments <laughs> uh, yeah. where people are a little less like caricatures and a little bit more like characters, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I, if, if, if I remember correctly, she sings There Are Worst Things I Could Do to Sandy in the stage musical. Like if they're yes. in the same room, right. that makes it more... Uh, 
like that that's an interesting way to do it because it, it again it's revealing and not that it isn't revealing here because i mean i i think what really cements the song is especially the last line and she goes but to cry in front of you that yeah. that is the worst thing i could do like that to me and i mean if my interpretation of this is wrong then correct me if i'm wrong but it almost felt like she it, we she was at that moment showing sympathy for someone other than herself and um realizing oh they're like i'm I had I've been nothing but like completely judgmental and like almost um uh antagonistic towards you for the show and I'm realizing now yeah. that I am also kind of going through similar problems that you are yeah. um personally and so to and I'm I'm re- she's realizing what she what she was doing was wrong or like that she had been in the wrong position and I I, agree I like with that, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's it's a very sort of self-reflexive um song you know in the in the thing and it's a it's it's sort of a good change of pace from what you know because I remember how the musical sort of you know, as with many musicals there's a lot of songs in the beginning and then it kind of tapers off mm-hmm. you know we have the thing in the dance and then there aren't really you know a whole lot after sort of that I mean you have greased lightning and so on but um, mm-hmm. that, that it's a you know in some ways it's a lot more effective I think than the solos that um, you know like hopelessly devoted you i mean it's it's which is just sort of expressing what we already know right uh, mm-hmm. but with rizzo it's sort of revealing something sort of about 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 her and you know she's the character that has the edge uh has an mm-hmm. edge uh you know in the show and she's and 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 in the and in the film and i think she's the only one really in some ways <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, and edge. what's good at they i mean one good thing they do is they don't make it rizzo as the one who transforms her um it's actually frenchie uh who transforms her which kind of makes sense in terms of her character so it's not like i'm going to turn you into a whole <laughs> you know what i mean it's not like <laughs> i'm going to turn you into me you know right mm-hmm. i mean the thing about the teen pregnancy it's all sort of just wiped away in in a single line um, right you know, and the whole joke is simply because it was a joke about a condom that he had in his loft forever. Yes. You know, and so yeah. on. So I've it had was, it since seventh grade. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> really held on. So to. it's very, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think they try and do, yeah, they, they try and to do, they try to do that um, more self-reflexive song with, um, and at the drive-in when John Travolta sings Sandy song that I've personally never really liked, um, which is different from the musical because in the musical uh, he sings a song called all alone uh, at the drive-in movie, um, which I mean, I understand why they changed it because that song in and of itself is very corny and just is chock full of just imagery about a drive-in to talk about um, his love for, for Sandy. And they wanted to make it more, clear just about um about sandy but i don't know again the fact that she just kind of disappears and then it comes back at the at the very end it's it's kind of muddled i think the song is in there to give john travolta um a song that could be uh in the top 40 yes absolutely yes (laughs) I i mean really that's what it is i mean uh there's a conscious effort to make sure that there's some, you know, because she gets she gets a song, he gets a song, mm-hmm. they sing two songs together. I mean, Summer Nights was on radio all the time. You know, that's how you get somebody to be in the 
<laughs> in, in the film and say, hey, look, and you can have your person write. What's interesting, and I always think it's so fascinating, is the uh, people who wrote the show, uh, Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey, had absolutely nothing to do with the film, and they weren't even invited to the premiere, um, which oh, I damn. think was probably done on purpose by Alan Carr because he was trying to uh, separate <laughs> the musical mm-hmm. from, from the um from the thing, but you think about the idea, just think that you wrote this thing uh, and you're not even able to sort of, you know, it's, it seems so bizarre to me uh, what that must feel like. And, you know, granted they made money off of it mm-hmm. as a complete aside. I don't know if you know this, it was originally going to be an animated film. Uh, really? And it was going to be done by Ralph Bagshi. Ralph Bakshi is an animator who made the first X-rated feature animated film called Fritz the Cat. Right. Yes. Yes. It's mm-hmm. kind of a, a cult film. He originally had the rights, I think, uh, for Greece. And the original idea was they would actually turn it into this, uh, you know, make it animated, which is probably what they should have done with cats. Um, and they <laughs> uh, didn't, um, and it, the rights ran out. It, he never got it done. Uh, and mm-hmm. they were able to, Alan Carr was able to get the rights. God, I'm just trying to think of this in animated form. Wow. Especially in the animation style of Fritz the Cat, which is so, yeah. so surreal. Um, wow. That, that is, that is wild to think about. Um, I have, I have a question for you um, talking about the message and what the takeaway should be. What do you think of the, um, what do you think of them driving the car into the sky at the end. Some people I know hate that. And I, I hate bring it, but I think up. it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny. I think it's, it's, you know, it's a nostalgia musical. So mm-hmm. you can do stuff like that. You know, I mean, the, the song, um, um, the teen angel song uh, is a fantasy, uh, you know, that she imagines that she's being, that someone's singing, you know, that, that this teen angel, she actually says, I wish I, 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 I think she says, she says it in the show. I wish I had a teen angel, like in those Debbie Reynolds movies, who could tell mm-hmm. me what to do, you know? And then all of a sudden he appears and he's this icon from the, from that era, um, sort of as well. I mean, I kind of think it fits the film because there are, there is that sort of whole, um, that sort of whole sequence. And it's just a sort of a throwback to, uh, you know, that we're not supposed to ever believe what we're watching is real. I mean, it's not, it's not rooted in contemporary reality. Um, I think that's also the reason why the whole thing about the transformation that they make, um, it's all in some ways it's, you know, she looks the way she looks, but there's something very wholesome about the whole film. And it sort of happens at the end. I don't think it, it suddenly makes the film something else than it's not. And I think it's just going back to sort of that whole idea about the, um, you know, the idea about being a fantasy. I mean, the, the creditory yearbook, I believe, right. The end, Mm -hmm. you know, so that even has the sort of nostalgic feel um, to it, but I, I have never had a problem with the car going into the air. The, the vibe that they're the whole, the whole movie overall, yes, is a very, um, is trying to give off this very wholesome experience and, the nostalgia of it definitely adds to that. I was thinking that the ending, like the song we go together is kind of the main takeaway that we should, that, that they really wanted to dive into is just, yeah. um, you know, the, 
the personal relationships that you have in your formative years, the ones that stick with you and just always trying to, to be there for each other and love one another because the musical, I mean, despite, despite its flaws and the message of the transformation is, you know, a little problematic that it, it is a very positive and trying to be a very, um, bright and happy show and happy musical that yeah. is again just entertaining so it's trying to and that's one of the whole re- points of high school obviously is how important those relationships are with your peers and um making a family out of the uh out of those out of those groups and i think casting older people makes it less moves it away from reality i mean i think what the what the musical tries to do is try to keep one foot on one side and the other on the other side, being one side being that it is this sort of fantasy, um, that it's nostalgic, that it's not really uh, about contemporary, uh, trying to reflect contemporary life. But then on the other hand, um, that there are things in it that I think speak to people and that people actually can find uh, some sort of connection with um, because it does sort of have you know, things about high school that people can relate to and relationships in high school. And, you know, thinking back about how, if you think about just your own, I don't know what your high school years were like, but I think everybody's high school years, everything was drama. Uh, you know, everything was such <laughs> yes. a big deal. Everything was a 10. Absolutely. <laughs> and now you think about it now and it's like, really? You know, I my high school, my um, <laughs> 40th high school reunion is actually this year. Uh, I don't know if it's going it, to, it's planned. I, hopefully it's going to happen, mm-hmm. but you kind of realize going back <laughs> to your you know high school reunion that um, the, the people who, I always thought the people who were the most popular hadn't really changed and they're, they don't seem so like, I want to be like them. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people that peak after high school. Uh, yeah. And I find that they're the most interesting uh, interesting group. And this has nothing to do with Greece, I guess. It's just, uh, you get nostalgic <laughs> when you're watching, yeah. when you think about Greece. I mean, you do, even if you didn't grow up in that era. Um, I, I think what's interesting to think about is people who did. And I've asked people like, you know, who did grow up, who went to high school at that time and so on. And they're like, well, it had nothing to really do with that because you know what these films are kind of like this amalgam. They're like, they take all these sort of signifiers of, that era and put them all in one movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> like yeah. Bobby socks and malt shops. And I mean, sort of all those things and, and cars and drag racing and everything. I mean, it's sort of like this um, sort of grab bag of, uh, you know, it's sort of putting it together. And yeah, it's just, it's so easy to get taken back to that time. And, you know, just all at my high school years were absolutely filled with drama, but that's the, that's where you are at that age. Just right. Everything is the biggest deal. Um, yes. and it's extrapolated to that, um, and prom and all of that. And you just like, yeah. ah, good, good memories. <laughs> um, and you're right. When you think about it now, you're just like, what, like, what, what was I thinking? What um, did it really matter? You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would like to point out that I, um, one of the, I, they had us do like write in, um, votes for what they wanted our prom theme to be, um, which ended up being, um, it was, I think, like New Year's in New York City, and they made the whole place look like it was 1999, and they had Broadway posters. That's up. cool. Um, but the 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 ones that I voted in uh, were uh, Hoedown, Sock Hop, and Hootenanny, and none of them got chosen, and I was yeah. very upset. <laughs> we had, we would have School Spirit Week, and our theme was Greece. 
Was oh, 50s. really? <laughs> yeah, because it was in, um, you know, it was in the year like 1978. So it was right after the summer that the film was a right. uh, big deal. They actually had the premiere of this movie as a half hour special <laughs> that was yes. syndicated. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's really out there. I mean, it's like you know, it has all the people who are there, and it, it was like a they had all these people performing. Um, you know, they tried to have all these tie-ins. I found all this information. These you know tie-ins they did with you know uh, how to promote the movie in your town, and you know, uh, and this movie had a real did have a really big premiere. I think it was at the Chinese Theater. You know, with yeah. with the time was like the place, the place to have a. Um, um, have film premiere. Can we talk about Grease Two a little? Have you seen Grease? Sure. 2? I've only seen a couple clips from it. Good um, for you. Just That's the good. scene. I, what's I've, okay? The two scenes I've seen. One of them, I'm fairly certain, involves someone is bowling, and yes. uh, the they have other a bowling. Mich- se- there's a bowling number, yeah. right? And then the the other one uh, is Michelle Pfeiffer uh, dancing and singing by herself in a warehouse. That's it. That's yes. all I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Um. It, it was sort of inevitable because the movie made so much money that they would do a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only person who's in it is, um, it's Frenchie. Um, right. and basically they just reversed the plot where, um, Sandy's cousin, uh, comes to stay at, uh, <laughs> and ends up going to Rydell and falls in love with pink lady, um, who is, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, um, who also was not a singer or dancer who, very honestly talks about uh, <laughs> and she was picked out of a, of a cattle call like audition, you know, where they bring all these people and um, Patricia Birch, uh, you know, picked her out um, and everybody's too old. Yeah. Uh, it's really kind of noticeable. One person who's in it is Pamela Adlin, who actually is the star and writer of better things. That's on FX. When she oh, was a teenager. Really? She plays oh, like wow. the young, yeah, the young um, things. But and they did the same. It was it was very much trying to follow the formula of the other of, of the original of the film, um, but it just did not have them in it. Right. <laughs> it had Maxwell yeah. Caulfield and Michelle Pfeiffer, who don't have any chemistry at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, it didn't have Olivia and John. It didn't really have singers. There wasn't mm-hmm. anybody in the cast. I mean, Lorna Luft is in it, who's Judy Garland's daughter, who must right. have been thirty five. Um, at the time, it's like ridiculous, and they and and they were all original songs, and they're not very good. Um, mm-hmm. So it was this very sort of. And Patricia Birch uh, directed it. It actually has a really great opening number uh, called "Back to School," which you should just watch. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the staging is really incredible, and then the rest of it is just oh, awful. It, it's really <laughs> there's like a luau at the end. It uses it's almost like someone took all the note cards from Greece and said, okay, let's make a sequel and we'll mm-hmm. do this, this, and this. And the plot is basically that Matthew Caulfield is this uh, mysterious bike rider um, <laughs> who um, I don't know, rescues Michelle Pfeiffer and she falls in love with him and he's hiding his identity. Nobody knows it's him and it's ridiculous. And Frenchie goes back to high school to teach chemistry. I don't remember what something what? <laughs> to do. She's sort of in and then she kind of disappears from the movie kind of also so oh my uh, the movie made no money it was a real big bomb that that, um, that was going to be my next question is did yeah. this make any money i, I it no. didn't sound like it would yeah no it did not the critics really uh, uh and it made it made no money the last thing i ever heard was someone was making a tv show based on greece 
like a TV mm-hmm. series. Um, but I haven't heard any, I've heard about that like a year and a half ago. I don't know if that's actually any thing. It all has to do with who owns the rights, which is Paramount, mm-hmm. you know, and now that they have all these streaming services and so on, they're trying to find content for them, but to produce content. Um, and Paramount has like this, has a streaming channel. Um, they did Heather's uh, as a TV show, which yes, I don't oh even my God, <laughs> it was really bad. And I don't even know if they showed the whole series or whatever. So, I mean, this is sort of like a bad idea. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's the kind of things, I mean, some things I think should just be left alone. And that's one of them. And there's been two revivals on Broadway. The joke mm-hmm. about the revival, it's something you could stick people in who weren't necessarily, because there were all these parts and they would stick in like Brooke Shields or stick <laughs> in like uh, people who were not singers and dancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could cut, and the parts were just thin enough that you could kind of get uh, away with it, you know, because mm-hmm. there wasn't really anybody who was carrying the whole show. Um, so I think, yeah, there were two revivals and they actually were on for a pretty long time. There'll be mm-hmm. another revival sometime, probably an anniversary of some, somebody will come up with something. Um, cause it is a moneymaker cause it's something that everybody will go see, you know, like people from out of town and someone, hopefully Broadway will be back in business. Yes. Soon. I mean, it's, and it's I mean, like the the one live musical that they did that revamped that whole live musical craze like a few years ago was Grease. They did it on Fox with Aaron Tveit and Julian Huff, and that was that was a big deal. I remember, like, yes, <clears throat> all my friends like got together to watch it, and we were just like the way that they do the uh, the car chase scene yeah. in the live version is hysterical because it's so clear you could totally tell the car is not moving and it's just lights going by uh their head which what i mean I obviously there's limitations but what i really hated about that and there were many things but what they really i felt it had nothing to do with grease because it was like these sort of set pieces and they would show the actors moving to the next thing and they had all the people cheering in fact some of our students some Ithaca college students were extras uh, oh really? Yeah, and the thing because they were shooting it when when students were here, and you just had to dress up like in the fifties. Right. Um, but I thought it, it it wasn't trying to hide the fact of what it was, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it was kind of. <laughs> I, I was watching it, thinking, "What? I, I don't get like what this is," because it's kind of yeah. like they would do a number, then they go out, and all these people are cheering, mm-hmm. and you know, I just thought it was like with the audience and so on. It, it, if you're going to do it live, I think of live as like, okay, you're in a theater and you're doing a show and there's an mm-hmm. audience and you know, clapping, but they were like running around the lot. Um, yeah. And it was, it was, I thought it was pretty bizarre. I, I, my thing was that they just, they tried to do the iconic parts from the movie that worked well because it was a movie. Right. Like, especially the, you can't do the car, the car race on stage or still right. because it doesn't make any sense it doesn't and yeah. they try and they were they try trying to, to replicate them. the yeah and they're that's a good point because they're trying to replicate the movie mm-hmm. not really even the show uh, yeah. so much right um well to kind of finish this off this is obviously the big burning question can you tell me how grease the movie or the musical adds to your love of film um or theater and why is this like a shiny example of the mediums and what do you really get out of it? Um, I think that 
my idea of movies that um, I sort of have a love for. And, you know, some of the movies are not necessarily films that I think are great films. <laughs> you uh-huh. know what I mean? Like in terms of, um, but I do think when there are movies in your life that you always go back to, and they probably remind you of a certain period of your life. Um, and in this film, it happens to be a film that is nostalgic, even though it's not really my nostalgia in terms of when it's actually set. I think that those movies are kind of the most important movies in some ways. Um, that if you're someone who could actually direct a film that can actually have that kind of effect uh, on people. You know, first to make a film that kind of transcends generations, uh, which is not something that you know, really is common, I think, with movies, uh, that it actually can speak to uh, different generations of people. Um, and I think the fact that it is nostalgic is the thing that actually helps uh, the film. I think it's the thing I like about the film uh, more than anything. It's not set in 1978, uh, which was not a really good year. <laughs> you weren't there, <laughs> but the 70s is not like something you feel nostalgic about the 70s. You know, um, <laughs> it was, you know, inflation and all these things happening. Um, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, you know, I think the fact that it's a film, and what I've always find fascinated about it is that it sort of had <clears throat> this very universal appeal and can actually appeal to, um, you know, multi-generations, even at the same time. You know, I mentioned that I went to this sort of uh, Grease sing-along. And what's interesting is there are like kids there and then there's parents and they're all like watching the same movie and singing along with the same movie. And right. when we all, you know, we think so much about movies as demographics and being like, who does this movie actually appeal to? You know, that it, it, it's, you know, they're, they make movies because they think of audiences as being very segmented, you know, and this is a movie that kind of is, you know, um, something that I think sort of has that appeal that parents like it, kids like it, a kid can see it. There's nothing offensive in it. Um, it's very in it, sort of inoffensive. And I just think that it's just genuinely entertaining. And I think its whole purpose is really to, if anything, to entertain. I don't think it's heavy on messaging. And I don't yeah. think it needs, and I, and I don't think it needs to be. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that there's enough things that are made uh, for younger people, especially now, um, that is, uh, you know, that can deliver messages. I don't think it needs to in this case. Yeah, and I I love, I think it's a great testament to the movie that it, obviously, that it can do that, that it can reach so many different generations. Obviously, it's almost, um, it's over 40 years since this movie came out, and it's still such a very important part of pop culture. Um, and I mean, like I said, I'm evidence of that because this movie literally changed my life because after this, I, all I wanted to do was theater and wanted to perform uh, and like learn to uh you know, just be like what John Travolta was doing in this and sing like him. And um, I love when uh, a movie can do that. And while, like I said, that obviously you think about high school in this movie because it's about high school, but I I get transported back to those really early days. Like I said, I first saw this when I was, I think like, I think I was seven. Um, And I just think about my hours I spent in my living room, like trying to do the dances and um, just like singing along. And it's so important to me in that fact, because that's why, again, I went down, I, I probably wouldn't uh, I, be in like film school or like be talking to you right now if it wasn't for uh, my pursuit of performing more when after I saw Grease. And despite all of its 
clear problems in terms of its you know story and all of that it's still so much fun and i i love i love listening to the music and um and like i i like that you said that while we obviously like try to get like some message out of it it's not the main purpose of that it's that's right. not really what you should be going into greece trying to do i mean you can and you can find something but it's it's really just about the experience yeah. of the movie itself and uh like who doesn't love listening to the soundtrack of this like it's it's great it's interesting because listening to you talk i guess something i never really thought about was the fact that it came <clears throat> out when i was in high school uh mm-hmm. and that probably uh, would never have occurred to me at the time that um you know that par- probably my um nostalgic sentiment for the film very much uh you know uh, probably stems very much from the idea that when it came out, I was actually in the middle of right in the middle of my high school um, life. So mm-hmm. I think that we connect with things, um, you know, very much when, especially with something like this, because uh, it is so high school centric. And you know, it's also, I mean, something about this film also is it does sort of really focus on high school. And high school students. It doesn't deal with home life. It doesn't deal with anything on the outside. Um, and I think when we're in high school, that's how we think of high school is <laughs> it's the center of your life. You don't think of your family and your home as, I mean, that's sort of what it is when you're younger, but when you're in high school, it's the first time you sort of feel like, you know, and you know, the thing about high school, I always tell college students or, or other people, um, you know, high school is the time you think about it, you see your friends every day for four years, you know, uh, even college isn't really like that so much. Cause you, you know, it's, I guess it's a lot of it depends on what kind of high school you went to and what kind right. of experience that you had in high school. How, like how big was your high school? Our graduating class was, um, like 300. Yeah, <clears throat> ours was like 200. So mm-hmm. I kind of knew who everybody was, wasn't friends right. with everybody, but kind of knew who everybody was. Um, right. mm-hmm. You know, and I think it very much kind of speaks to that, you know, especially as you see, as you get older and you start thinking about high school, you know, when you go to your reunions and it's very surreal um, and so on, because you're, so, I mean, I don't know how close you are to people from high school or anything. Extreme. I'm not necessarily, I mean, I'm in touch with people. Facebook has sort of made a difference, but I'm not, um, you know, it's not like I have people in my life every day that I see that I see from high school. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm the, my friends from high school are like my best friends in the world and I'm still very much attached to the memories of that time. Uh, especially since now just recently graduating and the, I'm writing a screenplay right now that takes place in high school. So it's like I, all the memories just constantly like keep coming back so I can, uh, and it's so easily to get lost, um, in that. Uh, and also, I mean, like I said, the, the cool thing about like this movie and a lot of other musicals is the escapism of that. Um, the fact that it's set in a completely different time period and it's just such a specific time. And yeah, it is so centered around just the students and their own personal problems. Like I, I, I kind of like just getting sucked in, sucked yeah, up into it. I agree. Very much so. Thank you, Steve, so much. Oh, this is great. This is the longest conversation I think I've ever had uh, about Greece. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, we don't we don't usually stop and think about movies that affect us, you know. Especially now, there's so much to, you know. I have a list right here of like TV shows I need to watch. 
yeah. on Netflix because everyone keeps telling me, <laughs> you need to <laughs> yes. see this, you need to see this, and so on. You know, it was a very simpler time where there wasn't as much uh, right. content out there, but it's a good thing. Absolutely. This was great. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. Huge thank you to our special guest, Steve Tropiano, for taking this time to talk with us. His written works include the music on film series with Grease and Cabaret, Saturday Night Live Frequently Asked Questions, and TV Finales Frequently Asked Questions. He also appeared in a Reels documentary recently all about Grease entitled Grease, Behind the Music. Be sure to listen to Ravnik Avengers, Ryan Valley Productions' very own Real Play D&D podcast. Their new episode comes out this Thursday, August 27th. If you'd like more Frankly I Love Movies content, be sure to go follow us on Facebook at Frankly I Love Movies, on Twitter at Frankly Podcast, and you can follow me on Instagram at JoshVelJosh21 for more new and exciting updates on what's going on in my life. And finally, in two weeks, Megan Ort takes a break from the South Korean touring production of Phantom of the Opera to speak with us about the best picture-winning phenomenon, Chicago. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Movies.